So, Will. Yes? We are both married men. We sure are. That's what makes the end of our episode so charming. Dating advice from two married white dudes. Yes, uh, that thing that everyone needs more of, for sure. But I have to ask, in a world where you are single, what is the one piece of media that you show a partner early in your relationship? Not oh. as a not as a test, per se, but just so they understand you more. Oh, it's obviously Back to the Future, subject of a future two-hour episode. I was kind of figuring you'd say that, but yeah, also I mean, wondering if you were going to drop in Howard the Duck just to annoy me. No, but I'm delighted that you did. You know, I am backpedaling a little bit, because if the argument is, like, to understand me, there is a strong case to be made for the Great Muppet Caper. That, yeah, that is actually probably gives a better sense of who you are as a person. Right. If the if the goal is, like, who is this dude that I'm going on a date with, then the Great Muppet Caper is probably the answer. Because there is no joke in that movie, no matter how stupid, that I don't love. Like, they can say, we'll catch those thieves red-handed, and someone else says, what color are their hands now? And I will laugh every time. Yeah. I think that's probably a wiser choice. But I understand your drive for the Back to the Future. Yeah, I mean, part of my reason for Back to the Future is that, like, that's a movie that I have on multiple occasions showed people early in relationships. Because if we're going to, like, hang out and watch a movie, why don't we watch a perfect movie? I guess that's a valid argument. I was once uh, hanging out with a girl. We'd, like, gone out, like, maybe two or three times. And then... We were going to, like, hang out and watch a movie. So, like, we spent some time together. We were, like, chatting, all that. And then we watched Back to the Future. And then at the end of the night when she was going, she was like, what was your favorite part of the night? I was like, honestly, watching Back to the Future. That thing's perfect. Well, (laughs) is this the woman you're married to? It is not. Okay. That makes sense. (laughs) It sure does make a lot of sense. (laughs) To be fair, that woman did go out with me again. An interesting choice on her part. (laughs) Yes, it was. I guess, you know, one more date will never kill you. Look, maybe she also recognized that Back to the Future was perfect. No, she was obviously perplexed by my answer. (laughs) She was probably perplexed by you and was curious for more insight. What can I say? I like to be mysterious. I don't think you like to be. I think you just are. People find me perplexing. That is accurate. I will stand by that, having known you for quite a while now. You know, we've been recording our conversations for longer than we haven't been. That is so wild to me. We've been doing this show for more than half of the time we've known each other. And because, of course, as everyone knows, we've stopped talking outside the podcast entirely. Never texting. We prearrange times by Carrier Pigeon and just log on. We coordinate it through our spouses. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, we have our people talk to each other's people. Because what we have to say here is just too good, right? We can't risk wasting any of our thoughts on, like, person-to-person interaction. Because we've also absolutely never talked in real life and then pretended to have the conversation for the first time on the show. No, that would be absurd. That would be such a weird thing to do. So, Mark, what, what do you show people when you're starting things out? Well, the answer, of course, is this week's movie. Plus the other two movies in the trilogy. I was going to ask, is it Fellowship specifically, or are they locked in for all three? No, you kind of have to watch all three, and then if they stick around, that's a good sign. Nick has stuck around. I think he lied about how much he enjoyed them the first time we watched them. Uh, I 
remember one time watching this with my high school girlfriend and then using our shared love of the movie to get out of kissing because I didn't really want to do that. <laughs> Wait, how does this work? Um... We were watching the movie, and she'd try and start kissing me, and then I'd be like, oh, wait, it's this part. She'd say, I love this part, and then start watching the movie again. I mean, that's a pretty good technique. Yeah. Because she and then my other two friends, that group and I, is what really brought me into the full Lord of the Rings world. We had, like, a movie marathon. They all came over. We watched, I think, two and a half, and then someone had to go home because they hit curfew, so everyone came back the next day, and we finished. And so, fond memories. But, you know, having had only one real long-term relationship, and then that ended in marriage, I haven't had a lot of chance to try other things. But I think if I were to have to do it again at this point, it would probably be Paul Feig's Spy. Subject of a future episode. Subject of a future episode. I believe I put, when I was a bit drunk one night, I was filling out the schedule and just put my favorite movies on it. Hey, you know what? It worked out. It was fun for me because I normally put it together. And one day I just pulled up the schedule and I saw, oh, Marcus just added things. Oh, you added them in sequence. We're doing Spy next week. Oh, great. Yep. Was a little drunk when I did that. Uh, Yeah. But I think that movie, if I were to show someone something to give a real insight into me, it would have to be Homestar Runner videos. A great answer. Because that is truly foundational to my sense of humor and kind of shaped who I am today in many ways. There are references to strong bad emails that I make to this day. And like those videos are older than my students. They're so good though. And I was introduced to Homestar Runner by a cool older cousin who is now uncool. So like it is the perfect encapsulation of the year 2005. Everyone was introduced to Homestar Runner by a cool older cousin. Exactly. Or someone who was introduced to it by their cool older cousin. Right. I may or may not have sent the interview as a link to work friends who had never heard of it. Because I was just like, how have you not even heard of Homestar Runner? They're youths, man. I know. I really think I am like one of the youngest people to know what it is. Because it seems that very few people younger than me have watched Homestar Runner. Yeah, because I feel like it never really caught on on YouTube. It was a holdover from the days of going to a website to see a thing. Uh, R.I.P. Flash animation. I'm increasingly becoming a Luddite. Remember when the internet was good and you would, like, go to different websites and do things? Yeah, not everything was in one terrible toxic location. Yeah. Now, I don't even know what you could possibly stumble upon these days. <laughs> oh my god, I miss stumble upon. Uh... I recently started listening to the radio again because I was just like, I need something that's not an algorithm. I have started watching broadcast television over an antenna because the like pure passivity of it is so nice. It's like, especially I found out that Spotify will now like offer to pay artists less royalties in exchange for bumping their music more. And I'm just like, this is so bad. I don't want the algorithm for a bit sometimes. Please just let a DJ put music in my ears. And I found a good radio station out in Seattle that doesn't have commercials. Because it's kind of affiliated with University of Washington still. But I'm like regressing. (laughs) I mean, I literally texted you the phrase, now I'm admitting that we do speak outside of the episodes. Uh, But I recently texted you the phrase, the Luddites were right. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I understand. Look, the actual Luddites were, I think, wool workers? 
Yeah, I mean, I think they were in the textile industry. Yeah, who went around smashing factory machinery because it was putting them out of business. Right. It was a labor movement. Yeah. (sighs) Things are getting bad. I'm scared of AI. I read an article that was just like, Almost comparing AI to, like, our current position of AI to the early days of COVID, where we all believed in normalcy too much to anticipate how out of hand it would get so quickly. I mean, I think that's an interesting comparison. Like, the best thing we have going for us is that AI is still incredibly stupid. Yeah. Like, people think it's much smarter than it is. They interviewed people working on AI, and they were like, Estimate the chance that the project you're working on could lead to the downfall of humanity. And they were like, uh, 10%. Too high! The interviewer was just like, and why are you still working on it? And the answer was always, because if we don't, someone else will. Not a good reason. And you know what? The Luddites were right. Oppenheimer, coming to you July 2023. (laughs) Yeah, fair enough. Uh, I saw an Oppenheimer commercial and was reminded of... After the war in 1995, Oppenheimer was a celebrity, and Kitty was an alcoholic. (laughs) That's from the Oppenheimer Wikipedia page, uh, which you sent me after we recorded our Interstellar episode. Yeah, oh my god. Brutal. This has been quite a a post-Oscars run, because I assume you remembered it seeing the Oppenheimer trailer during the Oscars last weekend. Our post-Oscars run on this show is a great encapsulation of what we do. I was thinking this today, because it's like The Nanny Diaries, a bad 2000s rom-com. Then John Carter, Interstellar, The Fellowship of the Ring, Spy. Yeah, that's pretty close to the kind of movies we watch, too. Yeah. Um, I feel like we're just chatting, which I love, but should we talk about this movie some? Yeah, probably. Uh, unrelated, and you can cut this out, um... During the Oscars, I hated when they did the, like, trailer for Little Mermaid actively sick. Heinous. But it was funny watching the trailer, because when Halle Bailey is holding the final note in the trailer, everyone in my family was just like, okay, and she's still going, she's still going, and she's still going, and then eventually the note ends when the trailer ends, and we were just like, Jesus Christ, she can sing. What's funny is... They did that, and that was terrible. And they did the, like, 100 Years of Disney promo, and I was like, get this commercial off my TV. But when they did the 100 Years of Warner Brothers one, I was like, this one I like. Yeah, I liked the Warner Brothers one more. I think just because it's not on a platform owned by Warner Brothers. It feels less crass. Yeah. And again, it was just like 100 Years of Disney retrospective, and it was aired on NBC, I would probably be less angry. No, it's the relentless cross-platform marketing that that company does. Yeah. Uh, someone call Taft, because we need this trust busted. Time to bust some trusts. Anyway, we should get this episode started. Welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark and I'm gay. And I'm Will, and I'm a ginger. This is an investigative podcast dedicated to examining the very least important issue facing our world. Does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And do I know too much about the Lord of the Rings lore? Probably. Also, are these people actually dateable or even likable? It doesn't matter if their romance is a main plot or a one-scene flirtation. We will dig in and see what's there. And this week, as we have said repeatedly, we are talking about the first installment in Peter Jackson's epic trilogy, the 2001 Best Picture nominee, The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. Also included on AFI's Top 100 list. Right, the last AFI list in 2007. This was the only 21st century movie to make the list. 
I think Two Towers is a better movie. Uh, you know, here's the thing. I have not seen... I don't think I've seen any of these movies in full since middle school. That is wild to me. I've watched the first hour of Fellowship a lot of times. Because I find the Shire stuff so lovely. I love the score of it. I love all the, like... Just sort of the, like, wonderful, like, warmth of it. So nice that, like... I would go to sleep to this movie in college sometimes. I would love to watch a, like small cozy comedy set in the shire about hobbits with yeah. no drama no like larger world ending business but so i don't think i've seen two towers or return of the king in their entirety in probably like a decade you gotta watch them i know i don't mean watching this i was like god you know maybe i should just turn on the next one right away except i had to rush to the one time only imax screening of pie yeah, I mean, I did. I finished it, and Two Towers came on autoplay, and I was just like, well, I guess I'm watching the beginning of Two Towers. Yeah, they're great. I mean, I guess we'll go from here. You mentioned a little bit with your friends in high school. Like, what is your origin point with either Lord of the Rings or the Jackson movies? So, I watched the movies, I think, like, as they were coming out, but I feel like I was too young for that. But I genuinely can't remember the first time I watched a Lord of the Rings movie, and it's a shame. Because I can't even remember, like, the twist of Gandalf coming back to life. It's just something I always know. But I then watched them. I tried reading The Lord of the Rings in second grade. I was like, hmm, this is boring because I was in second grade. I read them in fourth grade, and I think it was too young. I haven't gone back to them. Like, I appreciated them, like, the plot of it, but, like... I think I would get a lot more out of them today. Yeah, because then in high school, I made these friends in freshman, sophomore year. We watched all the movies together. I went to New Zealand over winter break of my sophomore year. And while I was there, I bought a paperback copy of all three books in one volume and was reading it in New Zealand, which was super cool. And I fell in love. I've read them a few times. I watched the movies too many times as I was watching the movie with like when you hear a song you've heard too much and you sang without thinking about it. I was watching the movie and when Saruman says like, and who do you serve? I just said out loud with the Urukai, Saruman. And I was like, <laughs> oh my God, I am alone in this room. What am I doing? So as you can tell, I've watched them many times. I've read not just Lord of the Rings. I've read the Silmarillion, Children of Huron, never finished the Unfinished Tales, which I think is kind of funny. So I kind of don't ever want to finish them. They're unfinished for you. They are just so depressing. It's like everything... Lord of the Rings is a dystopian novel, in yeah. a way. And yet everything outside the Lord of the Rings is even more depressing. Except for The Hobbit. I've also read The Hobbit, obviously. The Hobbit I've read several times. I love The Hobbit. But it's just like everyone's cursed and dying at all times. And I'm like, I just want a little story about hobbits going on an adventure within the Shire. You know, sort of what you're talking about with, like, it being depressing and everybody being cursed and dying, it sort of makes me think of, like, again, this is the first time I've watched past, like, weather. What is, what's the hill, Weathertop? Yeah. This is the first time I've watched past that in probably a decade. So I was really struck this time by Boromir. Uh, Great and character. Sean, and Sean Bean's performance. Great who, performance. Like, when I read the book in fourth grade, and I watched the movies a little bit later, so I'd already read the books. Like... As a kid, you're like, Boromir, annoying. Because he won't just go along with what the heroes obviously need to do. And then he's like a bad guy. 
And he dies, and, like, his death is kind of cool, but, like, he's a bad guy. He had to die. And, like, I was so struck watching this, and especially Sean Bean, how, like, how often he gets to play, I'm going to say the word warmth a lot in this, because that's really what I took away from this movie this time is, you know, for a fantasy epic, how soft it is in a lot of ways. And Boromir, more than anyone, is the guy that I feel like, oh, that's a person. Where, like, that's a guy who is, like, taking all of this really seriously and trying to do his best with it, but is also like a person who's not always doing his best and is like struggling with all of it and how to conceive himself as an individual and his country and this like larger scale of civilization and how they all fit together. It's weirdly like interstellar in that way. You could imagine him being on the ship arguing with those guys about like, should I care more about my family? Should I care more about the species? And I just found all of that really affecting. Boromir and the whole Steward family, it's, like, such a beautiful tragedy. It's people who are, like, and, and that's the thing, like, you read them, or at least I read them when I was, like, nine, as these guys are annoying, they need to get out of the way. Yeah. And in this, I so get, like, these are people who are really trying to do their best, but they are human. Yeah, because one of the biggest things that post-Tolkien fantasy misses from Tolkien is, like, the warmth at its heart. And it's not reducing it down to just good versus evil because, you know, it is a story of good versus evil, but it's not a story about only good people. They all do have their internal strife. Well, yeah, I mean, the worst Tolkien fans are the ones who insist that it is a story of clean cut good and evil, and it's not. And it would be boring if it were. Yeah, you get characters like Boromir, like watching Sean Bean laugh and giggle with the hobbits and care so deeply about Merry and Pippin and then seeing the one mistake he makes where he actually tries to take the ring and then the guilt of it as he's dying it's crushing I cry every time I cry a lot watching this movie and like I completely understand why when you're making movies of these you cut the scouring of the Shire because by that point you're just so exhausted you need to like you've had five endings to the movie but like the fact that the last person to be defeated is Saruman rather than Sauron. Like, Sauron is the, like, capital E evil. There's, at least in my memory of it, like, not that much character to him. Certainly not as someone who's not read the Silmarillion. But, like, Saruman, and I think Christopher Lee does such a good job with this. I mean, <laughs> it's hard to watch Saruman and not think of, like, like the Mitch McConnells of the world who, like, decide, like, yeah, this figure is obviously bad, but, like, Look, he's going to win, so what are you going to do? Just go along with it. I would have loved to have seen Christopher Lee do the scouring of the Shire. Oh, he would have crushed it. He would have been amazing. And, you know, the scouring of the Shire is one of the things that sets, like, makes the Lord of the Rings such a touchstone of the genre. That after the big victory, after the epic triumph, it's this sense of, like, everything is not done. Like, things do, you cannot just go home. It's so clearly written by a man who fought in World War One and then went home. Yeah. <laughs> That's especially one of those moments where you're like, ah, oh, yes, a World War One veteran wrote this book. Um, I, I don't remember when I first saw the movies. I Like I said, I had read the book. I definitely read the books first. And I read them as the movies were coming out, but I was not going to see the movies in theaters. I do remember that The Fellowship of the Ring was one of the first DVDs my family owned. We got our DVD player Christmas 2002. My family's first DVD player, of course, a PlayStation 2. Of course. I remember, like, some of that first batch of DVDs, it was, uh, I think Fellowship was specifically given to my dad. We got uh, Patrick Stewart 
production of Christmas Carol, the original Broadway cast of Into the Woods, and I feel like there was a third one that I think was not a stage play. That's a good crop. But Fellowship was part of that first wave of DVDs when, like, we were still... It was, like, a DVD slash VHS player. Yeah, that the transitional era is always fun. Yeah. I don't think I ever actually owned the DVDs until I bought them for myself. I bought the first two used at Amoeba Records in San Francisco for, like, $2 for the extended editions. And then, as a gift, Nick bought me Return of the King. But I would just watch, like, borrow people's DVDs or watch them on streaming when they showed up. Yeah. I once owned... My dad had Fellowship and Towers. I was once given Return of the King, but I no longer own it because it was a full-screen edition. I'm considering buying all the, like, ultra 4K high-definition nonsense of these. I've heard they are incredible. Yeah. I'm not surprised. I watched them on HBO Max because they don't have the DVDs with me, and it's... It so clearly could be so well remastered. Oh, yeah. The uh, big 4K upgrade I'm looking for... I mean, I should just buy the Lord of the Rings movies, but the big 4K upgrade I'm looking forward to this year is John Landau has been talking about putting out a 4K of Titanic. Wow. Yeah. I mean, how much money can it be to buy all four of these movies? Yeah. All of which come over two discs, historically. By the Blu-ray, they got Titanic on one disc. Yeah. And I think the Blu-ray of Return of the King is one disc, because I have that one on Blu-ray. But it is funny, because I was watching Fellowship on a school night, and I've seen it enough that I wasn't, like, worried I'd miss anything. So I broke it over two nights, and I just stopped it where I knew I would have to switch the DVD of the extended editions after the Council of Riven- <laughs> Council of Elrond. Because I hit that point, and it was, like, 9.30, and I was like, oh, perfect, I'll just stop here and finish it tomorrow. I mean, that is where I ordered dinner. Yeah. To take a dinner break during the movie. I mean, it's basically exactly halfway through, so it makes sense. But, yeah, like, as soon as Elrond says, you know, you shall be the Fellowship of the Ring. Perfect moment to take a break. Yeah. Iceberg, dead ahead. Yeah. Uh, Hugo Weaving is so good in this movie. He's great. He doesn't say municipal Darwinism, and that's really um one of the major flaws of these films. It was funny because, like, I had... I discovered watching this that I really had, like, Hobbit Hugo weaving in my head. And so I was struck by how young he is. Yeah, I mean, he is not... He's, like, the same time as The Matrix. They shot this the year The Matrix came out. Yeah. But he plays, like, ageless well. Yes, he does. He and Galadriel both. Uh, I mean, Galadriel in this movie, just crazy. So good. Kate Blanchett is so good in this movie. Kate Blanchett bellowing all shall love me in despair like you're playing with house money at that point like (laughs) that is just like that alone got a hundred million dollars added to the box office of this movie it was good to see her on screen because at first when it was just narration saying like you know much that was is lost for none now live who remember it when i'm just hearing that voice i assume it's spazzaturo the monkey (laughs) or i mean i i think they really wanted to cast lydia tar get her to do the music and do the voice. But since they couldn't get Lydia Tarr, they just went with Kate Blanchett. I mean, this movie, mostly just in credit and not really in reality, but at the very least credits Harvey Weinstein as a producer. And the idea of a production with Harvey Weinstein and Lydia Tarr is just the most toxic thing you could imagine. (laughs) Oh my god. One of my favorite fun facts about this movie is that Galadriel is one of Kate Blanchett's favorite roles she's ever played, and she got her elf ears bronzed and has them on display. 
She's cool. I don't know if you saw this video, but she was the most watched actress by Letterboxd users last year. Interesting. And somehow through, like, the awards circuit, some people from Letterboxd got to sit down with Kate Blanchett and, like, gave her a trophy. And it's, you would like the video. She is so, like, genuinely touched by it and going on about, like, look, like, when you're in the theater, like, you have the audience there. And, like, it's so wonderful to have this and to know, like, people are watching the films. I love... It's, like, incredibly sweet. I love celebrities who love movies. Yeah. Also, I can't imagine anyone else giving the opening narration as well as her. Yeah, I mean, this kind of sets a template, right? Where we now expect this sort of thing from a big fantasy epic. They do it in Mortal Engines. And it was not the norm in quite the same way before Lord of the Rings. Like, this really does create a new visual language for these big epic movies. I mean, it makes total sense that this is the movie that creates that trope because you have to compress 5,000 years of history into an opening monologue to get any semblance of an understanding of what's happening. So... I, I think we should probably talk a, just a little bit about the production of this movie. We could do, like, a whole podcast series about the making of the Lord of the Rings movies. So we're going to keep it a little brief. But, like, we should we should talk about this a little bit, right? Yeah. I mean, I feel like this is one of those series that people know a weird amount about in the general public. We made a joke on one of our first episodes about the story of Viggo Mortensen smashing his foot on a, on a rock or a helmet or whatever it is. And how, like, everyone's heard that story a million times. And I feel the story of all of the actors, like, getting matching tattoos and bonding, all of that's pretty well known, too. The fact that Stuart Townsend was cast as Aragorn and fired, like, three days in. Yeah. Viggo Mortensen adopted his horse. Is that the same horse he rides in Hidalgo? I don't know if it's the same horse, but the video of him and the horse, like, playing is so cute. So, the publication history of Lord of the Rings is really fascinating. If anybody doesn't know about the especially the U.S. publications of it, which were very contentious, and, like, Tolkien was getting in legal fights about them. Uh, that's worth digging into. Also, the reason why there are three Lord of the Rings books is because the U.K. still hadn't gotten over the World War II paper shortage by the 50s. I didn't know that. Yeah, paper was too expensive to publish a book that big. I assumed it was just a, like, physics issue. <laughs> no, because, I mean, we have books much longer published today, and I don't think printing like glue has improved that much fair so it comes down to the publishers were unwilling to spend as much as it would cost to print books that big without knowing it would be a hit and so okay. once the first one published and sold well enough then they were committed to publishing the other two essentially i know tolkien was famously annoyed by the name the return of the king because he thought it was a spoiler yeah which is funny because it is a spoiler But also, the Lord of the Rings is kind of a spoiler-ish in that you know that Sauron is the only Lord of the Rings very early on. So there had been a couple of attempts at adapting these. The only successful things were through animation. There was the animated Hobbit movie. There is an animated Lord of the Rings movie. I have not watched it. I need to watch it. So Peter Jackson saw that movie when he was, I think, a teenager. And at that point, he had not read the books. As he talks about it, he thought it was really interesting for the first half. And then the second half, he could not make any sense of it. And he's like, so I think it's a failure as a movie, but it worked because it got me to read the books to find out what the heck had been going on. Yeah, I I feel equipped enough to watch it and understand and see how it holds up. 
Yeah, I'd be curious to know what you think. I should probably watch it too. Uh, I watched all those Wizard of Oz movies. I can watch an animated <laughs> Lord of the Rings. <laughs> it can't be worse. It can't be worse. So then, as Jackson told it, like he kept just like waiting for somebody else to like one of the big filmmakers of the '80s to adapt it, and none of them did. So by the mid to late '90s, after he had made Frighteners, he was like, "All right, let's make Lord of the Rings." And he, at that point, had a relationship with Miramax from distributing Frighteners, and so he made arrangements with Harvey and Bob Weinstein to make the movie. And they started getting to work on a lot of the production stuff, the concept art really quickly. They hired a team of artists who had been like working on Tolkien illustrations for decades. Good choice. Yeah. I I thought this was kind of interesting. The initial plan with the Weinsteins with Miramax was to make three movies, but the first movie was going to be the Hobbit. So the plan was make the Hobbit as one movie and then make Lord of the Rings as two. Bad plan. So they then decided, and I, I did see this credited to Harvey, to say, let's not make The Hobbit now. We can make it later as a prequel if Lord of the Rings is a hit. But that's the, main, that's the big story to be telling. But at that point, the plan was still two movies. And so for a while, they were going forward, working on making this as two movies. And the first movie would cover most of what is now the first two movies. Like wow. The first movie would go up through... Through, like, the Battle of Helm's Deep would probably be the final set piece. Yeah, which would be a lot shorter, obviously. Yeah. Battle of Helm's Deep, one of the greatest cinematic accomplishments in history. I mean, yeah, also, like, shot daytime scenes over one month, nighttime scenes over three months. I mean, that is the source of one of my favorite quotes about filming in the dark, which is someone asking the cinematographer, so... Where does the light come from? And he goes, the same place the music does. To justify why it's so bright. A great line. A great line. And one that more filmmakers should remember. Yeah, look, it's the kind of thing of like, as a general rule, it is good to have a consistent light source. But also, sometimes, rule of cool. Yeah. I mean, it's like, everyone makes fun of, oh, a woman throws up in a movie, it means she's pregnant. But also, having that easy shorthand is a very helpful tool. Right. Like, yeah. Cinematic language is helpful. So they're making it with Miramax for a while. At some point, Harvey announces that he wants to whittle it down to just one movie. Peter Jackson counteroffers, okay, but it'll be four hours. And Weinstein's like, no, it's got to be two. I can't imagine trying to tell this story in two hours. Weinstein starts threatening to fire Jackson and bring in John Madden or maybe Quentin Tarantino to direct it. What? At which point, Jackson and his team are like, we think he's bluffing. Which, yes, obviously, Quentin Tarantino, around the time of Kill Bill, was not about to make Lord of the Rings. Yeah, of course not. So, they basically call the bluff. They say, if you fire us, you can't use our screenplay. Which would cost Weinstein a ton of money. They're like, basically, you can make it our way or put it in turnaround. And Weinstein says, fine, I'm putting it in turnaround. Jackson and his team, at that point, were able to bring it to New Line. And at the point they were working on that... They put together this, like, 35-minute featurette, which I assume is on those Blu-rays you own, about, like, basically, here's all the work we've done, all the cool concept art, all the, like, vision we have of this epic story. And they take it to New Line, and the guys at New Line are like, here's the thing, Peter Jackson, I don't like your movies that exist. I do not feel like financing three giant movies. And then Jackson shows them this 35-minute featurette, and they go, never mind, this is cool. Because it is cool. Yeah. 
And what they ultimately come up with to make it a cheaper production is an insane thing that no one has ever been able to replicate. And that is shooting all three movies together in a 14-month shoot. It's unbelievable that this worked. I mean, multiple people have tried doing it since then. The one that sticks in my head most recently is the Russos announced they were going to do it for Infinity War and Endgame. And, like, no one has ever been able to make the scheduling work. Because it's incredibly complicated and you have to plan it all out. Well, I mean, with Infinity War and Endgame, you have, like, real celebrities in it. (laughs) Right. And here, like, their most famous people are, like, esteemed stage actors. Yeah. Like, is John Reese davies the most famous actor in this movie? I think Ian McKellen would have been still. They shoot this before X-Men. Yeah, maybe you're right then. Orlando Bloom X-Men hadn't taken off. X-Men comes out while they're shooting. Pirates was the same year, so that was a big year for Orlando Bloom. Pirates of the Caribbean is 2003. It's the same oh, year it's as Return of the King. It's, oh, right. Yeah. Yeah, I think John Reed Davies was the biggest celebrity in Lord of the Rings when it was released. And look, I love Sala. He's one of my favorite Indiana Jones characters. But So what they did was they had to like plot out the entire movie, plan out all the shots. And so they shot it wildly out of sequence. They're shooting parts of Fellowship and parts of Two Towers and parts of Return of the King all at once like as they're moving through locations and also running shoots on like five different locations at once. It's just an unbelievable success in making it all work it's the kind of thing that makes those three nominations for best director and best picture make a lot of sense especially when you think of best picture as an award that goes to producers this is a triumph of directing and producing i mean it is a triumph the series is like it shouldn't work it shouldn't work and to be fair they did so they do this 14 month shoot they did then every year between the movies go back to do some pickups to shoot some scenes that as they were editing it together, they decided they needed for clarification. I mean, yeah, of course. Right. But really, it all happens in this 14-month span from October 99 to December of 2000. You also fully understand how all of the actors walked away as best friends. Oh, like my gosh, yeah. In part because this is the beginning of New Zealand as a big filmmaking location. Like, you had New Zealand filmmakers like Jane Campion using it, but... There was not a sense in Hollywood of like, oh, this is a place with like cool locations to use, which meant that they were isolated from like studio executives who might have gotten in the way. But also it means that like all these landscapes are a special effect in their own right. Like every time they go to a crazy new location, you're like, that's real. Uh, New Zealand's amazing. I would move there. Like James Cameron? Yeah. I didn't know he moved there. I think of you guys as being basically the same. Yeah, me and Jim. Yeah, you and Big Jim. I mean, it also, like, invents New Zealand's economy in a new way. Well, yeah, because you have this work being done there for the better part of four years, because there's the 14-month shoot, and actually Jackson even started tinkering with Lord of the Rings as an idea because he wanted to keep the team he had put together on Frighteners employed. So he's like, what's something we can get started on quickly? So he's like, okay, let's start making concept art even before we have a studio attached, just to keep all these artists on payroll. And then there's the years of editing, the visual effects work with Weta Digital. I think the real testament to how crucial these things have become to New Zealand's economy is, one, the fact that New Zealand tourism is mostly built around Lord of the Rings nerds, or at least seems to be. Uh, It's a big part of it. And two, the fact that when Jackson was not going to make the Hobbit movies, and originally Guillermo del Toro was going to make the Hobbit as two movies, and then del Toro dropped out, the government of New Zealand appealed to Peter Jackson saying, Please make these movies. They are essential to our economy. 
why wouldn't you watch these movies and say, I want to go to New Zealand? Yeah. It all makes sense. The thriving uh, chainmail industry in New Zealand. Because <laughs> so much of this is practical. Which is what's great about it. And, like, practical in a classical sense where, like, there are a lot of the backdrops in Rivendell are just, like, matte paintings. And they look great. They look great. I also love how all of the orcs is, like, the entire population of New Zealand. If you walk around and talk to anyone between the ages of, like, you know, 40 and 50, the odds that you run into someone that was an extra in The Lord of the Rings is higher than you'd expect. Yeah. These movies did also, of course, like, pioneer a lot of CGI at the same time that, like, over in Australia, George Lucas was doing the same thing with Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith, where, like, the use of CGI armies for the big battle scenes was a big feature. And, of course, there's... Andy Sorkis as Gollum was the big focus of all that. A game-changing performance. Yeah, absolutely. Also, the decision in Two Towers to make Gollum a source of comic relief is a genius move that you would not expect from reading the books. No, but it is incredibly funny. Uh, 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 when I started it, I forgot how early the It Burns Us moment is, and that he's like, now I'll have to st- Starve. It is just the biggest drama queen. It was funny watching this and realizing just how many memes come out of the Lord of the Rings movies because they were such a part of the monoculture that, you know, in Fellowship alone, there's like 20 different lines that just everybody knows. I mean, the like, the fact that the iPhone auto-corrects Urukai to the correct, like, capitalization and punctuation. These things were a phenomenon, right? Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship of the Ring made $315 million in the United States. It made another $575 million internationally. Yeah, I. it's... The amount of money these this trilogy made overall is astonishing. It was crazy. They were gigantic hits. And they deserve to be because they're so good. And, like, I was watching this with my, with my wife, and she was like, there will never be another movie made quite like this again. Just in terms of, like, all-encompassing shoot, the use of practical effects for so much of it, the fact that it is made as a complete thing and not, like, here's a hook for a spinoff anywhere. It just, like, is its thing. I actually, you know, I was really impressed with this, with how elegantly it integrated stuff from The Hobbit without ever making me feel like, oh, well, obviously this is teasing us for a Hobbit movie. I mean, yeah. Like, showing how Bilbo gets the ring is so well done because it's short but you fully understand, and it introduces Gollum in a good way. Yeah, and there are so many, especially in the Shire, just, like, casual references to the events of the of the Hobbit, where they talk about, like, referencing the dragon and getting Bilbo out the door, and there's this scene where Strider and the Hobbits are hanging out beneath, like, three trolls that have been turned to stone, and it all just feels like these people have histories and not like, oh, here's a bunch of lore I gotta know. Ugh. And Frodo and Gandalf's introduction, it's like, they're such good friends. I mean, that's the stuff that I watch over and over again, even when I don't watch the whole movie. A good example of how important Lord of the Rings is to the New Zealand economy is we went to this, like, puzzle house while we were there, which is just, like, games and puzzles and optical illusions. And they have a room that's designed to, like, show off one of the perspective tools they did for comparing people to the hobbits of having like a short ceiling and the tall ceiling in a way where you film it and it looks the same height that stuff's so cool all the forced perspective stuff obviously some of it is done with stand-ins using little people shot from behind 
it's striking to watch the like Frodo and Gandalf scenes and how rarely you see both of their faces in the same shot. Yeah. But the force perspective stuff is so cool. And some of it's so obvious. Like on the cart when they're both sitting and you see both their faces on the cart, the seats are just at different spots on the cart. Yeah. It's amazing. I mean, we could talk about these all day. I know. We could talk about the effects forever. I haven't even brought in some of the most ridiculous lore knowledge. Um, We should mention that visual effects is one of the Oscars this movie won alongside Best Makeup, Best Original Score for Howard Shore, and Best Cinematography for Andrew Lesney. Uh, It got those four out of its 13 nominations. All deserving wins. I mean, Return of the King, has anyone beat it or only tied it for Oscar wins? Return of the King is tied with Titanic and Ben-Hur for wins. Yeah. And what's the most nominations now? La La Land has a tie with, it might be Ben-Hur and Titanic. Basically, to get past Return of the King, you have to get multiple acting nominations. Yeah. Right. And I think Return of the King, one of the big records was they received the most Oscars they were nominated for or something. Like, they won every Oscar they were nominated for, something like that. Yeah, okay. So the highest nominations for a movie is 14. So one more than Fellowship got. And those movies are all about Eve, Titanic, and La La Land. Okay, yeah. La La Land, you've got the multiple song nominations. But Return of the King was nominated for 11 and won 11. Yeah. Which is the big, I think that's still the thing that hasn't been tied yet. That's what you call a reverse Irishman. A reverse, <laughs> yes. The classic reverse Irishman. I love the Irishman, but it, I believe it went 0 and 11. Ben-Hur was not my favorite. I've only seen the chariot race, which everyone says is the best part, so. <laughs> yeah, it's long. <laughs> I, famously. It is, I believe, the only Best Picture winner based on a novel written by a Civil War general. (laughs) Uh, Wow, what a record to be proud of. Yeah, that's like I was throwing around during the Oscars this year, like, oh, this is actually the first Best Director win by a director of the Turn Down for What Music video. (laughs) I don't know if that accomplishment will ever be topped. I don't think so. I think this is the only time it's going to happen. It's so funny that Ben-Hur won in 59 and The Apartment won in 1960. They're different movies. What a completely different movie. It's not Green Book to Parasite, but it's up there. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, you are correct. Uh, Just want to shout out one of the moments in the movie where I was like, I know too much is when I first watched it or like the early times when Gandalf is on the bridge and talks about being like holder of the secret flame of Arnor and calls the Balrog a servant of the dark fire of Udun. I mean, that part's really cool. When I understood what that meant, that was when I was like, I've gone too deep. (laughs) In case you're wondering, the dark flame of Udun, Udun is the um, citadel of Morgoth, who is the dark lord before Sauron, who is... I'm vaguely familiar with Morgoth. One of the Valar, who sang a disharmony in the singing of the creation of the world by the Valar and, of course, the creator god Eru Uluvatar. Of course. And thus created evil. It was funny watching this as, like, feeling just Lord of the Rings knowledge come back to me as I was watching the movie. Like, just more and more words were coming into my head. It was like, uh, maybe two years ago, I read a Star Wars novel for the first time in like the first time since like college. And it was funny where it felt like I was like turning on a machine that was taking a while to warm up. But like what, as it went, it was like the the gears were turning. The words come back to you. The Star Wars wiki pages you've read start redownloading into your brain. 
Exactly. And I had a smaller version of that experience watching Fellowship. Yeah, I've spent a lot of time on the Tolkien wiki page because there's just so many words. There's so many words. And one of those words is love. Of course, exactly. That's what we're here to talk about. Famous love story, Lord of the Rings. All shall love it and despair. All shall love it and despair because this podcast is dedicated to love and only love. We will be breaking down the romance into five points to guide our conversation. I'm excited about this because I've glanced at your points and you do not have all of the loves that I identified in this movie. So it seems like there's maybe more love than we expected. There are other loves. I focused on the most important two. Okay, great. So Mark, you are our uh, Tolkienologist. What are they called? Oh, I don't know. There's I'm not, a word I'm for not at a, I'm not at Stephen Colbert's level. You're a Tolkienier. And so uh, I would like you to guide us through the all-important romance of The Lord of the Rings, colon, The Fellowship of the Ring. So I was wondering if I just do like five different romances, but I think I could only really come up with four. I guess there are five, but only two really get enough attention in this movie. (laughs) That is so generous to say that one of these gets enough attention. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't, but it's the only actual like romance, so we have to cover it. Of course, that is the... uh, Faded romance between Aragorn, the lost king of men, and Arwen, the descendant of the Baron and Luthien half-elven clan who, you know... Sorry, which one of those does Steven Tyler play? (laughs) Oh my god. Uh, One of my favorite fun facts about Liv Tyler is she has no relationship to Steven Tyler, does not consider him her dad, only uses the name to get ahead in Hollywood. Good for her. And I'm like, that's the way to use connections. Yeah, I think uh, Lily Allen is the same way. Yeah. Wow. Steven Tyler, not a great guy. Liv Tyler, great in this movie. Yeah, she is. She has very little to do. She has so little to do. And it's and yet more than I expected. It's so much that. more than she has to do in the books. Yes, that's true. It was interesting reading about this production, how there were a lot of different efforts to try to integrate Arwen more into the story, presumably to get more sort of traditional Hollywood romance into it. Like, in one draft... Actually, this was kind of fascinating. In one of the drafts, it was going to start in media res with Frodo and Sam at the border of the Shire, uh, which I think would have been a mistake. Yes. But in that one, Arwen was going to go with the Fellowship all the way from Rivendell to Lothlorien and, like, circle back to team up with them again in Rohan and was going to be, like a whole part of the crew there and, like, have an on-screen love triangle with Eowyn. Ugh, Eowyn. We'll do Two Towers someday so we can <laughs> we talk about her. We should do Two her. Towers someday. There's another version where she and Aragorn had, like, a watery sex scene at one point, I think, in what would have been Two Towers. That would have been horrible. <laughs> it would have been funny. <laughs> this movie <laughs> is about softness. Entirely out of the tone of the movie that we get. Yeah, it was just interesting to see that, like, there were a lot of efforts to give her a larger part in ways that turned the movie into a more conventional Hollywood romance. And this isn't a Hollywood... Like, the romance between Aragorn and Arwen, it's less romance in the traditional sense. It's more chivalric. Yeah, it's very inspired by chivalric, like, troubadour, courtly love. Right, the idea that it's not really going to be consummated. And that's where a sex scene feels like it would be missing the point. Right. And then... The big twist is, like, they do get together. There's only, like, three recorded romances between humans and elves. 
in the Middle Earth world, and this is the last one, and, like, that's a big deal. They're technically, I think, like, cousins, but he's 77 generations younger than her. So I think it works out. So I think it's fine, because her uncle, Elrond, half-elven's brother, Elros, who chose the path of humanity, sure, is, like, the 77th grandfather of Aragorn. Because she is a cougar, you could say. <laughs> a, like, 2,500-year-old woman going after a svelte 90-year-old. She's a, a regular Edward Cullen. Yeah. Aragorn, also, almost 90 years old. Did not know that. <laughs> yeah. He comes from the line of Numenor and thus is, you know, uh, ages slower than normal men. Sure. I did not get that from the movie. I think that's actually mentioned in the extended version. Okay. Which I've never seen. As a joke. Because it is funny. All right. So we're talking about the romance of Aragorn and Arwen. (laughs) Okay. Point one. Frodo's dying. Arwen uses this as a chance to be funny and flirty by putting her sword to Aragorn's throat, being like, ooh, a ranger should have heard me come up by now. What's this? A ranger caught off his guard? Yeah, just your classic nagging. Classic nagging. But then... They have a moment where they talk in Elvish. He is like, you know, we got to stay together. She's like, I can ride faster than you. Let me save him. And then eventually she succeeds. It's clear they have a like relationship. But then Arwen gallops with Frodo dying. Hot. All the way to the ford that leaves into Rivendell and then calls down a massive flood of water across the ford. With the waves cool in the shape of horses. So cool. Artwork of that was on the cover of the paperback fellowship that I read when I was in fourth grade. Arwen is very cool in this movie. Yeah. In that scene. She mostly disappears after it. She yeah, mostly disappears. Point two is their other scene where Aragorn and Arwen have a conversation in Rivendell. And she says, like, I would give up my immortality for you. He's like, oh, don't do that. He said you'd find yourself to me. Forsaking the immortal life of your people. And to that I hold. I would rather share one lifetime with you than face all the ages of this world alone. Yeah, he's being very broody, looking at the sword that was broken. Narsel. Talking about how, like, oh, I guess, like, destiny is going to make me go down this crazy path. And she's like, or it could not, and we could be in love. That might be nice. And yeah. Like, no, we cannot be in love. Yeah. Because, I mean, you know, obviously Lord of the Rings, inspired by Tolkien's attempt to create a unifying myth for England and inspired by King Arthur, blah, blah, blah. So it's very courtly love, but they do eventually profess their love for each other in a chaste way. And she gives yes. him a brooch. Slash necklace. I think it's very chivalric romance. Yeah. It's very like Eleanor of Aquitaine's court troubadours would tell the story of Aragorn and Arwen. Yeah, exactly. Uh, point 2.2.5, quick aside in the extended edition, there is also... I, I can't verify any of this. So there's this also all like... on your word as far as I know. A weird trippy moment where Aragorn has a dream about Arwen with that like weird white light elvish face showing up on screen. And they kiss. Do they not do that in Two Towers? I feel like there is a weird dream sequence. Maybe it's in Two Towers. I think it's... There is one that's in an extended edition. And they yeah, may like, do I, it again. 
I believe you if you tell me there is one, but uh, there is something of like Aragorn like sleeping on some like pebbly ground and yeah. has a dream conversation with Arwen. But again, their romance is very weird that way. And that's it for them. Spoiler alert, Return of the King. They actually do get together and it's very sweet. Yeah, they they sure do. Um, them kissing in Return of the King was part of the reshoots. Good. That It's necessary. Yeah. Uh, are you an Aragorn or a Legolas girly? You know, I again, I wasn't really watching the movies until after they had all come out. So I was aware of the, like, 11-year-old girls in my class who had very intense feelings about this. And I really do not. Yeah. I'm an Aragorn girl. He's so hot. I, again, like, I, I don't disagree. But, like, I get so much more out of, like, I don't know, um, out of, like, Boromir, like I mentioned. Or even just, like, Gandalf. Oh, yeah. I mean, of course you're gotta be different. <laughs> but if you have to pick between the two. Between, oh, Aragorn. Yeah, okay. So we'll take this moment to give some honorary mentions for romances that develop later. The classic being Legolas and Gimli, who are boyfriends. Aragorn and Boromir, I don't really see them as boyfriends as much. No. That's one that gets shouted out. Merry and Pippin. Look, I'm sure there is a lot of Aragorn Boromir slash fic out there. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> I can't imagine. But like in this movie, I appreciate it so much more not as a romantic relationship, right? As it just mm-hmm. being the complicated relationship between these two guys and their personal relationship, their political relationship, and then just getting absolutely wrecked at Boromir's death with my brother, my captain, my king. Yeah. Oh my god. Tears. I still cry every time I watch this movie at the Fellowship when they are a fellowship at the Council of Elrond when Boromir dies and then in point five, which we'll get to shortly. So the next three points are about the true central romance of the film, which is between Frodo and Sam. Of course. Somehow I didn't expect this and I should have. Which... In filming, Ian McKellen told Sean Astin and Elijah Wood how important the Frodo and Sam romance is in the gay community. And that's why they play it where they're, like, touching hands and clearly in love. I mean, that I said it. Like, what I love about this movie is how gentle it is. Um, I sent you, in 2021, Polygon did this Year of the Ring retrospective where all year they published a lot of really great essays about Lord of the Rings. And one of the first ones was this essay titled queer readings of lord of the rings are not accidents and it's a really great one i'll put it on our social media but i think it was that essay that really helped me not having seen the movies in a long time get this as a romance Mm -hmm. because it's so cute oh i didn't mention i just want to give a quick shout out to the drinking game that a high school teacher told me about (laughs) which is inappropriate but also i was like three months away from legal drinking age in singapore when he told me this so what's the drinking game you drink every time Frodo falls down. And I haven't fully played it, but he said he couldn't get through the first movie without being drunk. I believe it. Because he falls a lot. He might as well be wearing a big sweater, is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, he is our rom-com lead. Because a lot of them are, like, cutesy falls, and then you also have the, like, Frodo is dying falls. Yeah. All right, so walk us through Frodo and Sam. Okay, so point three, Frodo and Sam are in the Shire, best friends. Frodo's doing the classic, oh, you should talk to Rosie, to Sam, try to wingman, but we all know what's really going on. And then when Gandalf is sending Frodo on the quest to Rivendell, Sam is listening outside the window and is, uh, like, 
scared of Gandalf, but has to go to protect Frodo, his Mr. Frodo. This is it. This is what? If I take one more step, it'll be the farthest away from home I've ever been. Come on, Sam. Remember what Bilbo used to say? It's a dangerous business, Frodo. Going out your door, you step onto the road, and if you don't keep your feet, there's no knowing where you might be swept off to. Sam is much more scared than Frodo because he's never left the Shire. He's a classic hobbit. Frodo comes from the weird line of the Bagginses who are willing to leave the Shire. But he goes because of Frodo. Apparently Sean Astin, who's 10 years older than Elijah Wood, like adopted Elijah Wood on set and like was a mentor to him, which is really cute. Yeah, I mean, this is right around the time that Elijah Wood is just, like, starting to transition to adult roles after being a child actor. I think it's probably his first true adult role, because he's only yeah. 18 when they're filming it. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking, like, it's not that long after, like, North, where he's playing a proper child. Yeah. So, one fun thing, based off of reading the books, you could very easily cast, like, Jim Broadbent to p- play Frodo based on the books. Look. He is a middle-aged man. I would love nothing more than for Jim Broadbent to be the lead of this movie. I kept, genuinely, I kept waiting for him to turn up because he feels like such a fit for this world. Absolutely. He easily could have played Butterman, the owner of the Prancing Pony. Yeah. Point four, the next true romantic moment. There in Rivendell, Frodo has been stabbed by a Nazgul blade on Weathertop. And is recovering. Elrond saves his life. And then he wakes up in the Rivendell Hospital. And Sam never leaves his side while he's healing. The one moment he leaves, of course, is the moment Frodo wakes up. But that's only so we can get exposition from Gandalf. It's Dumbledore at the end of Sorcerer's Stone. We just need that conversation. Yeah. And then Sam shows up and they hug and he gets in bed and they have a cute moment. Yeah. You know, like you said, these things are all incredibly sweet and you know again sam is just always going out of his way to look out for frodo again at the at the council of elrond when he's not supposed to be there he is doing his best to keep an eye on what's going on carry the face of his old little one this is indeed the will of the council then gondor will see it done Mr. Frodo's not going anywhere without me. No, indeed, it is hardly possible to separate you even when he is summoned to a secret council and you are not. Wait, we're coming too. We'll have to send us all tied up in a sack to stuff it. Anyway, you need people of intelligence on this sort of mission, quest, thing. And Merry and Pippin much more, like, accidentally get involved. Sam is... Sam is there because Frodo is there. Yeah. They have such a fun little pod in the books, and there is a fifth person who stays back in the Shire, and he probably lucked out. He's the one who's there to maintain the ruse that Frodo hasn't left. Right. And then he never comes back in the books. I hope... I wish him well. No, 
That's who Jim Broadbent was playing. He's in the oh, double extended yeah. edition. <laughs> okay, point five. The end of the movie. A lot of things have happened. Boromir tried to steal the ring. Frodo and Aragorn realize that the power of the ring is too seductive, and Frodo has to do this on his own. And so Frodo is sneaking away and crossing the river in a boat. And then Sam sees him leaving and runs after you get the classic line. Frodo says, I have to do this on my own. And Sam says, of course you do. I'm going with you. I made a promise, Mr. Frodo. A promise. Don't you leave him, Samwise Gamgee. And I don't mean to. I don't mean to. Oh, Sam. Just incredibly lovely. And then Sam starts walking into the river. Frodo's like, you can't swim. But Sam's like, doesn't matter. I'm coming anyway. And tries to swim out to the boat. And then he starts to drown. Then Frodo rescues him. And they go off on their own to have their own adventure. And it's just so lovely. And I cry every time. It's really great. They have the most classic Hollywood romance in the movies. And they are friends. Yeah, you're, you're not wrong. Yeah. In the books, Gimli has a crush on Galadriel, which I find really funny. Extremely funny. <laughs> but also, who wouldn't? Yeah, I mean, fair. Um, the other ones I thought of, I did have Sam and Rosie on my list of possible romance things. Oh, please. That's a beard relationship. <laughs> and then the other one I had was Saruman at one point says to Gandalf, your love of the halfling's leaf has clearly slowed your mind. And so I thought we could possibly, if we needed a point, discuss Gandalf and his love for what the movie makes pretty clear is basically pot. Yeah. (laughs) I love the lead in to the pot element. Which is funny because, again, like, I last watched these movies in full in middle school. And so I was aware of, like, cultural jokes about, like, Gandalf and and Bilbo or, like, hobbits just, like, smoking weed all the time. But to watch the movie and have the text of the movie be like, they're getting stoned, was not really a thing I was ready for. No. And that, like, clearly then the other wizards are like, oh, yeah, Gandalf loves to go, like, hang out with the hobbits and get stoned all the time. And you know Radagast is hitting that weed, too. Radagast is, like, on mushrooms. That is so accurate. Gandalf is smoking weed with the hobbits. Radagast is doing shrooms with the Ents. Saruman is strictly cocaine. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. <laughs> doing Gotta lines, be white for him. Doing lines off the palantir. Um all right, Will, do you find the romance between Sam and Frodo and I guess Arwen and Aragorn believable? I feel like I find the Sam and Frodo more believable than the Arwen and Aragorn. I had not until we had this conversation put the Arwen Aragorn thing into chivalric terms, and I think that does help me to conceptualize it a little bit more because it it has always felt kind of sterile to me. Yeah. But I think it's supposed to. Yeah. Because it's also really a romance that's, like, not supposed to happen. Right. But, like, you would almost expect that to be, like, okay, it's not supposed to be happening. And so, like, the reason it's happening is because they're so passionate. But instead, what's happening is they're tamping it down so much that you're not really seeing that. Right. And just, like, as background, the reason they fall in love is because Elrond takes Aragorn is in as a ward after his dad dies and so he grows up in Rivendell okay I mean that makes sense but I did not know that yeah that you get from the appendices I I don't know if I read the appendices and if I did it was like 20 years ago yeah 
Sam and Frodo makes a lot of sense. So where are you going to rate this? Yeah, it's not like I find chivalric romance believable. That's the thing. It's understandable. Right. I understand the context. But I don't know. I'm going to give it like a six. Maybe a seven. I I was going to say seven, actually. And I was going to be surprised that I was above you. I think it's seven. All right, cool. Um, Do you think that any of these four are dateable? Um, Frodo needs to work on his coordination. (laughs) Um, Sam, absolutely. Sam's the clear number one here. Sam's the clear number one. He's also like a really good cook, right? Yeah. He is like the only cook. Yeah. That's because Sam comes from the lower class. And yes. Frodo is like minor noble of the Shire. Frodo's landed. Frodo is a landed gentry. Sam is his gardener. It's an illicit affair. Yeah. Uh, Arwen, don't see Weirdo. enough of her, but she seems cool. And she seems cool. She can like, ride a horse well. I also just like don't want to do the like romance with an immortal person. Yeah. And then Aragorn, he's hot, too moody. but too moody. He's cool. Too much baggage in that relationship. I would maybe date Strider. That guy seems cool. Yeah, just the ranger version, great. The, like, lost Dunedain king, yeah. less so. Um, do you think that either of these couples will stay together? Um, yes. I actually do. I mean, here's what I think. Purely on fellowship, I don't know that I think Aragorn and Arwen will get together romantically. That's a good point. Purely based on this movie. Yeah, it's hard to divorce it. Sam and Frodo, absolutely, from oh, yeah, this for movie sure. alone. That's a good point. I don't know if they'd ever get together from what we have here, except that she does say she's going to give up her immortality. Yeah, but saying and doing are different things. I always took passing her necklace as her showing that she has given up her immortality. You're right. I do think that's what's going on there. So maybe then. Um, If you had to pick one person in this movie to date, who would you choose? As a joke I wrote down, is Silter? No. <laughs> I think I could fix him. <laughs> I could fix him. <laughs> I would get the ring into Mount Doom. I don't know. I think there are a lot of good options and a lot of just terrible options. God, most people in this movie are so undateable. Yeah. You could date uh, Old Man Proudfoot of the Proud Feet. Non-ring-affected Bilbo is probably my choice. Yeah, that's like non-ring affected. We're like non-ring Boromir. Non-ring Boromir, also good choice. I think is probably my answer. Yeah, like remove the ring from the situation. Take Which away. I, I don't his... have the ring, so this would not be a problem. Yeah, take the ring away from Bilbo. He's just a fun-loving guy who throws a good party and wants to go on adventures and travel. Yeah, uh, Ian Holm is so good in this. God, he really is. Should there be a Lord of the Rings musical? I mean, no. No. (laughs) Just no. In part because, like, as we said way back talking about the production of the movie, like, this story is truly epic and, like, cannot be neatly condensed. And I just don't think there's any anything good to come of trying to make a multi-part musical. And that's all we'll say about that until Wicked comes out in December 2024. (sighs) Yeah, I. it's just no. Also, you know, if we're talking about the movies specifically, part of the magic trick of these movies is New Zealand. Right. I mean, it's like, this movie would not work if you didn't have such varied scenery so close together. Like, the shot of Arwen running through a forest and then onto a giant field and then into a river, all within a relatively short period of time. That is what New Zealand looks like. You could do that. Yeah, it's it's part of what makes these movies work. It's amazing.
All right. Well, this has been a blast. I do think we should do the others at some point just so we can keep doing this. Yes. And I would say the next two movies have more characters I'd be interested in dating than this one. Okay. I know that you are you are all about Grime of Wormtongue. No, excuse excuse you. It's the mouth of Sauron. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> um But yeah, that's it for Fellowship of the Ring. Next week we will be continuing the Mark was a bit drunk and adding movies to the schedule list with Spy. Spy, a good movie. A good romance, too. A good romance. A movie I think I was watching when I filled the spreadsheet out because I was a little drunk. And when I get a little drunk, I watch Spy. I mean, there are worse things that you could do. Until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love the Love Pod. And you can email us questions or movie suggestions at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe, especially on Apple Podcasts, to help other people find the show. And Mark, my brother, my captain, my king. Uh, what is the best piece of dating advice you got from this movie? I would say you'll have better luck dating a mortal. Because Frodo and Sam seems to be on better footing than Aragorn and Arwen. That is true. Um, For me, I'm going to say be there when your partner needs you. The way that uh, Gandalf's hoo-hash is there for him when he wants to smoke. Sure. Uh, until next time, I'm gay. And I'm a ginger. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye! Bye. Bye.